the Word of God. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. It's found in your bulletin if you don't have it on your phone, um, your smartphone or whatever app, whatever thing you got. Um, it's in your bulletin if you need it today. But nevertheless, wherever you see it read and written, this is the Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God. Thank you, Pastor. Good morning, Christ Central. Well, you can hear the rain uh, blowing out there and then probably lulling some of us to sleep. Uh, I know this is usually when the time when I, I look forward to a, a nap when it's raining like this and you just hear the pitter-patter on the, on the windows and it's perfect conditions for that. And I hope the spirit keeps you awake this morning. You make it through this service um, before you get a time to go home and uh, take a little nap. Now, I, um, as you know, we've been going through the mission of Christ Central Church uh, for our sermon series. And uh, Pastor Howard asked me, like, what I would like to preach on whenever I get a chance um, to stand before you on Sunday mornings. And, uh, and I prayed about it, and I was led toward uh, the first uh, letter of uh, the Apostle Peter. Now, Peter is not um, my favorite apostle, right? He's not my favorite of the, one of the first leaders, the people that Jesus set aside to have authority over his church. Uh, my favorite is probably John um, for a lot of other reasons, but... If you're familiar with Peter, you know that this is a guy that you can't help but love him. Well, I mean, the moment you learn about him and you read the gospel accounts of his life, you're like, man, this guy, I get this guy. I understand who he is. He's, he's, this is a guy who's kind of walked in my shoes. I mean, he's a you know, he's hardworking guy, uh, you know, fisherman. He was married. Uh, you know, he, uh, his brother was also one of the disciples. And you know, they, they walk with Christ together, but there were times in which he kind of put his foot in his mouth, right? And, and if you've been in the church for a long time and you've heard sermons about Peter, that comes up a lot. Like, you know, this is the apostle, the disciple that always put his foot in his mouth. And, 
you know, he's, in one second, he's like, Jesus, you know, you're, you're awesome, you're great. And then the next minute, he's like, no, Jesus, you can't do that. And then J Jesus is calling him Satan. And you think, well, Peter, uh, you just keep messing up. And then, you know, in and, and other times, he does the same thing, right? In, in, in other places in the Gospels, you see where Peter kind of steps out there for the rest of the disciples, as it were. And they're probably thinking what he's saying, right? Some of you have friends like that. You know, you, you're thinking something, but you, got, you let your friend take the fall for it. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they talk a lot. Just let them say it. And then uh, they catch the heat for it. And this is what the disciples did with, with Peter. You know, he's that guy, the spokesperson um, for his brothers. And, and, uh, and often he put his foot in his mouth. But when you also look at his story, you see the profound, deep forgiveness and love that God has for you and I. For Peter was the one who denied Christ to his face after he had said, oh, I'll, I'll go to, through heaven and hell for you. You know, I'll go through the fire, through the, through the you know, whatever, like Shaka Khan, you know, to the limit, you know, right? And, and, you know, and this, is, this is Peter. You know, and, and then, but then he denies Jesus to his face three times and he hears the cock crow, right? And Jesus told him this was going to happen and he, he weeps bitterly, but then Jesus comes after his resurrection, and he restores him, and he sits with him, and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know, I can't. What else can I say? He says, if you love me, feed my sheep. And Peter becomes the leader of the church for decades until he dies. And even to this day, right, churches have been named after Peter. People name their sons after Peter. Um, Peter shows up in literature. He shows up as a metaphor for other things in, in art. Um, Peter has had a profound effect upon our culture, but as we take in his life, he has a profound effect, a profound effect upon our lives. Now, there's one thing that we need to do, that I have to do. I have to get a little conceptual before we start getting into this letter, that, um, the beginning of Peter's first letter here. Because there's a concept here, there's one particular concept that you have to get in order to understand what Peter's going to do throughout the rest of his letter. And that concept is going to become apparent here in just a minute. Let me start just by saying this, that our home, this planet, this place, Earth, that we call our dwelling place is a beautiful place, is it not? Did you know that there's a such thing as river dolphins? I didn't know this. Like, there are dolphins. You think about dolphins, like, in the sea, something like that, maybe in the Gulf or something, if you've been to Florida. But, like, in river dolphins, yes. In South America, there's the Bodo dolphin that lives, that lives in the Amazon River. And these things can't even see, but they use echolocation, like, to get around. And I saw a film of, of these the other day, and they're able to go through, like, reeds that are sticking up. And, I mean, they go through with precision. It's ridiculous. You see these things. Dolphins that actually exist in the river. Kind of like our world is a beautiful place. I mean, when you look up and you see, like, uh, 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 and you're able to look into the Milky Way and you see these dark spots that, where it seems like no stars exist, that's actually where nebula exists. And in the nebula, you have uh, a hydrogen that begins to cluster together over time and like over a millennia. And then that hydrogen, as it begins to meld with each other, eventually heats up enough where it becomes, it becomes converted into helium. And then that helium ignites. And then you have a star, a star is born. And this happens, right, in our universe. Our home is a beautiful place. And you think about the, some of the, the art that we celebrate. One of my favorite artists of all time is Claude Monet. And, and Monet, you look at him, you, 
at his work, and you see how he uses both light and, and shadow um, to, to bring forth a, a landscape and how it impresses upon our senses as we take it in. Or even Edward Hopper, who's one of our great American painters who conspicuously leaves out certain details in works like Nighthawks and Night in the Windows where um, he, he, he leaves out certain details so that you're able to fill it in and actually see your inner life through his painting. Isn't that amazing? Hey, our, our home is a beautiful place. And then another thing I'll share is just with our, our food and, and our economy. So think of this. Follow me here for a second. You're, there, there are fields that are filled with grass, and we have to keep them going, right? And the, there are cows that, that feed on that grass in order to eat. And somebody has to take care of those cows, and so we have farmers. And farmers are, have jobs because, they're, because cows exist. Some farmers do, right? And then, uh, and then you, but knives are created, and somebody had to figure that thing out, has to create the, the handle and the metal that goes into making that knife. And then those knives are used to slaughter some of those cows, right? And then, so somebody has to go into those slaughterhouses and work those things. And so you have jobs that are being created along the way, right? Different people's skills are being employed here. And then from after the slaughterhouse, somebody has to build a, a smoker. And, and, and someone awfully takes metal and forms this this beautiful uh, piece of work that, that, um, that smells great when you smell something cooking in that thing, right? And then there's, a, there's, a, there's city planners, city planners who kind of figure out where things are going to go and, you know, is this a commercial district or is this a residential district or is this going to be uh, for mixed use, right? And then the local community board has to come in there and politicians have to come in there and get get involved and say, well, you know, yeah, is this right? Can we use this part in this way? Can it be mixed? And then investors will come in and join into the mix and say, well, I'm going to invest money into something, into these commercial properties that are, that are going to be built here. And the architects then get involved and start drawing up designs and figure out how, you know, what's, what's this place going to look like and how should it go? And then engineers have to come in and break all the architect's dreams, right? And say, no, you, that's not going to work. Sorry if you're an engineer, but you know you do that. You know you do that. And then, uh, and then you know, there's a, there's a construction team, right? And, and all those the, the different folks who are involved in uh, contractors who, have, who help these things become a reality. And then there's a, there's a realtor involved who's, you know, has to figure out, you know, you know um, who, who's purchased this and, you know, is it right to go here and can you do this here? Utility companies that then get involved, Duke Energy and people like that that have to turn on electricity, electricity and the water and make sure the heat's going and furniture makers, people who spend time building what's going to go into that. Um, and as you get the picture here, there's a restaurant. that Somebody's got to build that thing and interior designers. And so that's some of you in here, designers who look into a space and see something that is empty and conceive of something that is beautiful and begin to hang and picture what's going to be hung on the wall and where things will be placed. And then there's finally there's a chef who's got to get back there and start cooking us some good stuff because that, that beef is coming. And somebody's got to figure out how to make that thing something that's delicious and scrumptious and, 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 and wonderful, something that we want to get put all of our teeth and our heart in, into as we devour it. And there's a staff that has to run that thing, waiters and busboys and all that kind of stuff. And if that restaurant's good, it's got to have Wi-Fi. So somebody's got to get in there. Maybe it's Google. I don't know who it is that gets in there and hooks up that Wi-Fi. And finally, all this stuff is done just so we can have barbecue burnt ends at Midwood Smokehouse. Incredible. We live in a beautiful world. This is our home. 
And, 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 and you know, I love sci-fi just as much as the next person. But you know, when I but I, when I think about that stuff, like you know, all these adventures and people are trying to move to different planets and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, later for that. This is my home. Earth is where we belong. Right? This is, we don't need to be thinking about going you know, to thousands of light years away to some other planet. This is our home. Earth is where we belong. Or is it? Claude Monet, he also tried to commit suicide. He jumped into the river Seine when his work wasn't accepted by the academy. He didn't know how to pay his bills, couldn't find a job. Brother almost died. His life was spared. Some aquatic life, not river dolphins, but others, maybe jellyfish, sharks, things like that, they'll attack you. And the stars, like the sun, some of you know, can cause you sunburn and even skin cancer. And when it comes to sustainable food, in the food chain, in our food economy, well, we have plenty of documentaries to tell us about what's going on there. Exploitation of workers, right? How some of these nice restaurants that pop up in neighborhoods intentionally or unintentionally contribute to the problems of gentrification. Our home is beautiful, but it's also a mess. And why can't we make our lives work here? Why can't we make this home a permanent place where everything is flourishing? I mean, we face problems like overpopulation and global warming and revenge and a lack of forgiveness and anxiety over our work and the exploitation of the poor. And if it's not exploitation of the poor, maybe it's just exploitation of our friends. Well, progress and prosperity for ourselves, as the song says, more money, more problems, sometimes it just brought more problems for us and for others. Widespread solutions that we have tried to come up with seem to work for a while. But the problem of mortality, as I preached here before, robs us of any deep satisfaction in those solutions. We're not able to enjoy it like we want. This is our home, but it's not our home. The Bible's word for that is exile. We live in exile. See, that word is used in the scriptures of first when, with regard to the first human beings, to Adam and Eve, when um, they sinned against the Lord, and they were sent out from the Garden of Eden. So we no longer live in Eden. As Steinbeck said, we are east of Eden or in some other direction, right? And then it's used again to describe what happened to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, when they also sinned against the Lord and were sent out of his presence. They were sent away from their peaceful dwelling with God on earth because of their sin. So whenever the word exile is is used in scripture, at least up until this point, is used to, to describe a divine act of judgment. Judgment. That's a hard word, isn't it? I mean, that's one of like, you know, and, you know I, don't, I don't like going to church because I got to hear about judgment. 
I don't, I don't like that word. Doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me. And, and trust me, you know, sometimes as a pastor, like, I, I don't know if I need to be sharing that thing, you know, just to put it out there because it's going to get really awkward really fast. Well, we may not like that word, but we do like justice, don't we? I mean, many of us who are at work, I mean, you heard Pastor Howard just talking about movement day and how um, so many of us are, and, and our neighbors, people that we know and love are engaged in acts of social justice and we're trying to uh, uh, make the world right again and, and, and make things whole. And so we want justice. We want to make our homes and this planet uh, better simply uh, through justice. We need to have it. We have to have it. So if we demand a God who is, who is just, a God who is uh, not just all-powerful and not just good, but just, then should we not be surprised? Or should we, should we be surprised when we see judgment showing up in Scripture and judgment showing up in the things of God? If God is good and all-powerful. We need him to be just, too. Otherwise, we're better than him. We need it. No one's exempt from the exile. This is a big point, and I'll repeat this a couple of times. No one is exempt from the exile, which is why Peter says in the text that we just heard, to those who are elect exiles. Now, that adjective, elect, in there, right before exiles, it makes a big difference in the experience of of Christians and how we experience the, the exile. And I'll get to that in a little bit also. But again, we're all in it. Everybody's in the exile. Christians, non-Christians alike. The exile is real. We've suffered displacement from a world that, that fits our work. We've suffered displacement from, displacement from a world that, that fits our actual desires that, that fits the weight of our souls because we've been judged. C.S. Lewis, that theologian and author, he says, the fact that our heart yearns for something earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. We're home, yet we're not. We're in exile, and suffering is proof of our exile. But Peter will have us know that Christ is proof that there's a way home. And what Peter proclaims and says can make all the difference in how we relate to this world in its current condition. And that proof that he talks about, he, he describes Jesus here as a living hope. The living hope, that proof of a way home. It is that which will change us, which will make us into deeper and spiritually vital people as we live through this exile. Now, how will we do it? How does that happen? Okay, so now I'm going to get to the text. He's going to help us. What Peter, I think, instructs us to do is not only to gaze upon the living hope, but to trust in him. And we do that in two ways. I'll kind of break that down for us. We'll look at what that living hope, what Christ has done for us and what he is doing in us. What he's done for us and what he's doing in us. Hey, you all remember that Christmas was not that long ago. Like we just celebrated, the, had Utah cheer and all that good stuff and ornaments were up and spirits were high and we had a good time. And as we should have, 
because we need to make a big deal about, about God's son coming to earth and living as a real human being. And when we celebrated Christmas, we remembered that Jesus himself entered into our exile and became like one of us. He, went, he didn't stand aloof of our, uh, of our, apart from our experience. He was in it. He suffered along with us and experienced its joys and also its disappointments along with us. And Jesus went all the way in to the very end. And he didn't just come for a couple of years, but he lived among us for over 30 years. He, could, he didn't, you know, his story didn't stop at the manger. He didn't become a toddler or something like that. And then, you know, God whisked him away and all of a sudden everything is solved. But he lived on into adulthood and he walked through all of our various experiences, the, the things that we experience in this exile. He experienced those same things. He went all the way to the end, even until uh, death on the cross. I mean, he, he enjoyed laughter with his friends and laughter with children. But he also endured mocking and bullying. He, he enjoyed crafting products from locally sourced wood. But yet he was also crucified on the hardwood of the cross. So Peter is writing to people here who are new to the biblical faith. They don't know much about it. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. They didn't come up knowing about the God of Israel and about uh, his law and things of that nature. They were new to these things. And they were living in these parts that he lists here uh, in in the text uh, where he says uh, Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. These are regions in in modern-day Turkey or what some would call Asia Minor. So he's talking to these people who are new to the biblical faith. They don't really know all the background, but they've been schooled in it over time, and they've come, come to believe in Jesus Christ. And then he says to them, he says to these people, he says, to, to those who are elect exiles, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He says, talks about sprinkling with his blood. What is that? You all already know. He's describing that hard wood of the cross where Jesus died to pay for their sins and to end their perpetual exile from the Lord and from his future due to their sin and due to their self-righteousness. They've been set free. God had appointed them to share in his future. But it doesn't stop there. Peter goes into a whole lot more. You go look at verse 3. He says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What he's saying here is that there is hope for us in the exile. Jesus came out of the tomb with a physical body, and that, that, that body is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And he inherited and will inherit a new creation, which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. He's come forth with a real body, but new, for a real world, but new. Now, again, I love sci-fi just as much as the next person. 
But I'm not interested in having my consciousness uploaded into some mainframe that's going to be downloaded into some faraway planet about 500 years from now. Y'all, this is real stuff. You go, you watch National Geographic and you go online. There are people who are working on this kind of stuff right now, right? Trying to figure out how to, in order to live forever, you know, take your consciousness out of your body and you know, upload into the mainframe. What? No. But see, what happens is what Jesus is, what he has done, he has not only paid for our sins, he has also won for us an inheritance, which is a new body and a new creation, right? He calls us to look forward to and to be changed by a destiny which involves real physical bodies in a real world that will be made new. That is our hope. That is the hope that Jesus gives to us. Now, it's a hope that he's won for himself, right? He was able to live perfectly, right? He was able to go to the cross and suffer to the end out of love for God and, and, and out of for, for the glory of God, not like we would do. But the scripture says that where Jesus has won, he's keeping it for us. He's keeping it for us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the inheritance. We don't deserve what Jesus is going to bring, but he is keeping it for us. I mean, we don't even deserve it because of our ethnicity. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that most of us in here are not Jewish. How do we get in? Right? He says, you know, the elect exiles of the dispersion or the diaspora. Now, that is a term that is used for the, the old covenant people of God, for the people of Israel. Like, that's something that when you, when you read the, the Hebrew scriptures, you see that terminology used for his people, for the Hebrew people over and over again. These are the people of the, of the dispersion. And yet, Peter is addressing this to non-Jews and hence addressing it to us. How do we get in? We're not Jewish. Jesus, that's how we got in. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as scripture declares. How do we get in? Jesus. That's how we got in. That is, that's how we get what Jesus has earned, and that's how we get the hope that Jesus is willing to give to all those who would trust in him. And so because of that, we can trust him with our lives as we struggle through and try to make our way forward through this life which feels like and is exile. But it's not only about what he's done for us. We can trust him because of what he does in us. Not only what he does for us, but what he does in us. Look again at verse 3. He says, well, here's this, this Greek, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are what? Being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the hard thing about reading passages like this, and frankly, the hard thing about doing any level of pastoral ministry, is dealing with this issue that he speaks about here, this issue of suffering, various trials. And some of us have heard this passage or have heard, had others use it or something like it to help us in our time of trial, and maybe we experience some confusion with it, maybe even some abuse. Hey, my marriage is falling apart. Hey, don't worry. God's going to use it to change you. He's going to use it to refine you. What? Right? And, and, and again, you know, C.S. Lewis says in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And some of us say, I'd much rather be deaf, right? I don't need to be roused. Thank you, God. I don't need that. And then remember, even there are even passages like in, in 2 Corinthians, which is written by the Apostle Paul, which he, taught, he says, where the Lord says to him, my, my power is made perfect in weakness. Ah, I don't need your power. Just take me out of exile. I don't need that, God. And it's tough. As we try to encourage one another in, in our times of trial, this is a difficult thing as we read this. Right? Lord, just, I don't, I don't need the power. I just need to be taken out of my depression. I just need you to take me away from this shady, mean-behind teacher. Get him out of my classroom, right? Or whatever else the case may be. Lord, just remove it. And somewhere along the way, here's the real problem. Somewhere along the way, we've been told, and I said this earlier, that Christians would be elevated above the normal human experience. And it's just not true. We are in the exile with everyone else. But hear me. You may be in exile, but if you're a Christian, Jesus is in the exile with you. That is what makes the difference. Christ is with you in it. And he will make you into a new person. Yes, it is true. Through your grief and through your trials. And it is in those times in which uh, we are being challenged to learn how to trust him. And in those times, it may not be obvious, but what the Lord is helping us to do it's to learn how to grasp onto him, to enable us to have a deeper faith in him, to hold on in, to him in faith instead of becoming bitter and closed off or more prideful people as we attempt to love a world that is sinful and dying. For that is the temptation for us, isn't it? And then check this out. If, if you're becoming more like Jesus, if you're growing in your humanity, your humanity is being expanded in the midst of your exile, our exile, as it, as, as it did for, for Jesus, then it means that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God is with you and he is at work in you. Now, here's why this is important. If the Spirit of God is at work in you, then you can be assured that you will have a new body and you will be a part of the new creation 
For Paul says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is moral may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. A guarantee. The presence of the Spirit of Christ in our lives means that you and I are guaranteed to go home. It will happen. The reality that is yet unseen is made real by the presence of the Spirit in our lives, who is helping us to become more human as we live through our exile. Now, are you seeing it yet? Jesus not only inherited a home, a real home, our true home, but he has inherited all who believe in him. You are his inheritance. You belong to him. He didn't just earn a place or a new body, but he's earned you. You belong to him. Through Jesus is with you in the midst of, the, in the midst of your trials and your suffering, and then that is proof that you are his, and he is mine, as the song says. And there's the importance, then, to go back. There's the importance to that word, elect appointed. You've been appointed by the Lord to know his love. And you have also been appointed to serve a sinful and dying world so that others might share in his joy. That is the importance of being chosen, being appointed, being set apart. And it's not by your own works, right? But you're sanctified, as, as Peter says, by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's done it. Friends, you and I, we have a living hope. But sort of turn, you've heard that song, what's love got to do with it? What's hope got to do with it? What's hope really have to do with our experience of exile? As we go through it week after week and day after day, for we face perennial fruits of sin and death, things that are always around us and seems like they always will be. For how long has bullying been around? How long have middle schoolers, particularly in middle school, have, have had to be the butt of somebody else's joke and had to dish it out themselves? It's been going on for years. How long will some of you always, or how, how long will we, we always experience, you know, always being the bridesmaid and never the bride. That's been going on for a long time. Like even, be, even, even during the time when there were arranged marriages, you know, more traditional societies. I mean, look at Leah and Rachel, right? How long will our children test our boundaries and, and second guess the decisions of parents and think that they're smarter than their parents? It's been going on for a long time. How long will people go on not being able to pay their bills? Right? How, how long will we consume products and services at the expense of the powerless and the vulnerable? It's been going on for a long time. How long will systems of racial hierarchy be allowed to dehumanize everyone in its path? Seems like it'll never end. The exile is real. 
Friends, the exile is real. What will you do? I'll tell you what. There's some alternatives, right, to what Peter's calling us to do. There's some alternatives. And I think there are really only two alternatives. The first one is you can curve in on yourself in selfish despair and begin to make the world all about your problems and how the world can best serve you. That's one way to do it, right? This, this stuff will never change, you know, so it's going to keep going on. So woe is me. Let everybody be concerned about my problems. And, and some of you who've been in, 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 you know, and again, this affects not just everyone out there. It affects Christians too, right? Everybody's in it. So you've probably been in a small group, right, where you've seen this, where you've been in a community group, and somebody's problems just soak up the entire conversation, right? You know, I mean, just you're talking, and it's not like, Okay, right, there are real, there's stuff, there's things that happen. A parent just died, something like that. You just got bad news from the doctor. Everything stops, let's pray. But week after week after week after week, this one person or two people, whoever it is, constantly soaking up the prayer time, the conversation. It's like, well, time's up. Like, we just lost it. A whole hour's gone. Nobody else got to share their stuff. Selfish despair curving in on oneself. Right? That's just one example. And we have plenty of other examples of that, but that's just one alternative. That's one way in which we can deal with life in exile. Now, there's another way which seems nice, which is a lot better. And I think it's basically you, should, you just spend your life just focusing your labors on serving your neighbor, giving something that helps the world, and, and thereby, and this is the sinister side of it, thereby establishing your own righteousness. Now, that may not be the motive at first, but that's really what's happening there, right? Now, some may object. I realize not everyone here is at the same level of faith. Right? You may be thinking, I don't, I don't need that religion stuff in order to do good in the world. I don't, I don't need that. That works for you, and that's fine. And, hey, listen, I agree. Like, religion does help. And you don't necessarily need it to serve your neighbors. I completely agree with that. But if there's no God to establish or uphold love, and justice, and peace, and reconciliation, then what are we doing? Why even do it? Right? Or is it just because of we need to do it in order to survive? Right? If, if we don't do these things, we'll kill each other. So, so we just, you know, we need to make some kind of social contract and kind of help each other out and and, and, and sacrifice to help your neighbor and go without from time to time just so we can make it as a society? Okay. But what happens when the time comes when you don't need to do that? When you have just enough resources to feel like your life is a little slice of heaven. You don't really need to depend on other people in order to make it in this exile. What happens to all that good work then? Loving neighbor, looking out for the, the little guy the poor, the marginalized. When you have just enough resources to feel like your life is somehow beyond the exile, you begin to curve in on yourself. Just like the other option. Because you have no true moral ground to live otherwise. You really don't. And then after all that, you're still not going to get a chance to go home, to your true home. But we have a living hope, who is Jesus Christ.
And trusting him in the hearing now, it won't, it won't lift us above the exile. It's not going to lift us above it. We're not going to come out of it. And as I said, it, he's going to be with us. And it, and it will be hard. And some of what you, what you do and, and, and how you think will not fit in with our society. Hey, and this is, you know, this is what happens when you become someone new, someone a little different. Hey, I used to, you know, back home in New York City, you know, I used to have um, uh, others who were transplants to the city would ask, like, when, when do I officially become a New Yorker? You know, when, when do I officially fit in, that sort of deal? And I, I, I just tell people, I think it's when you begin to talk like a New Yorker, right? And when you begin to see things the way a New Yorker does, that, that's when you know, like, this is, this is your city. Like, you're, you're a true New Yorker now. Scripture says that when we give our lives to Christ, we are born again. We become new people. We begin to take on a new language, begin to see things in a different way. And it's a way that begins to rub against the cultures and the societies and the homes from which we come. It's going to be hard. It'll be hard because Christ, as the Holy Spirit is working in you, will give you a deeper love for your neighbor and a deeper love for a sinful and dying world. And it's that love that will make you even more vulnerable to disappointment and heartache and pain. Look, if you're considering being a Christian today, I just I have to tell you about this stuff because that, so some people are just not going to let you know. That being a Christian in the exile is not a call to live above it, but it's a call to live in it and to grow with and, to, and to, to, be, to have your humanity expanded and have a deeper heart for the Lord and a deeper heart for those around you. But it hurts. And it's this expansion of heart that, uh, or as the Apostle Peter describes it here, refining, uh, uh, that is evidence of who you are and where you're headed. And this is why he says, verse 8, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are becoming more like Christ. And the pain that you begin to experience as your heart expands in love for the Lord and for others is proof that the Spirit of Christ is at work in you, and he is the guarantee that the inheritance of Jesus belongs to you. You have a true home. You will go there. You don't deserve it, but God has given it to you. You don't deserve to be appointed for this, but God has earned it for you. And that's why if you're able to take these things into your own heart, you should be able to sing to the Lord in a way that um, I believe Kirk Franklin put it right. He says, he says, Savior, more than life to me. You are the joy in the air I breathe. No other lover can there be that makes my spirit sing. Hold me close, don't let me go. You're the only friend I'll ever know. That 
is why I love him so. More than life. More than life to me. Are you willing to give away your life for the love of the world? Because you are God's inheritance. You belong to him. And you have a true home. As you walk through your pilgrim journey, learning to love as Jesus loves, Christ, our living hope, becomes more than life to us. And we'll be able to endure in service to this home that is not our home, that others may share in our joy, and that others may share in the love of Christ, and that others may share in the future that is yet unseen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not abandoned us to the exile. Oh, we deserve to be here. Will we examine our thoughts and look at our actions and just even the things that we have failed to do. We know that we not only deserve to be in the exile, but we make it worse. We make it worse for ourselves. We make it worse for our friends and those whom we love. But you, by the power of your spirit, you help us to bring forth good in this world. Because of the presence of your spirit, you are holding back the full extent of our sins, the full extent of our wickedness. You allow us to experience the taste of your righteousness here and now, even in spite of unbelief. God, you have been gracious toward us. Your common grace is all around us. It is all within us, in our hearts and in our mouths. And so we offer up ourselves to you and ask that you would make us new. For only you have the power to make us into new people, not just different people, but brand new, so that we would be a blessing to a world that is a, a, a glorious mess due to sin and death. God, I pray that you would establish us again in your love and remind us of who we are, that we would have strength to keep believing, to keep trusting in the midst of this exile. For sometimes it's hard, and Lord, you know it can be hard but you've called us to endure, not only for ourselves, but for your namesake and for our neighbors, that we might all share in your love and joy. Not just now, not just for this world, but also for the world to come, which is yet unseen. We praise you, O God, for our living hope, who is seated at your right hand. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.